Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name's Tom Clark, and this week our deputy editor, Steve Bloomfield, is going to be talking to journalist Stephanie Marsh about one woman's mission to put thousands and thousands of children of sperm donors in touch with their biological dad, whether their biological dad wants to meet them or not. But that's later. First, I'm joined here in the studio by our arts and books editor, Samir Rahim, as well as Prospect's political correspondent, Alex Dean. Alex, another busy old week for you, but as ever, you're trying to get a bit behind the headlines. I gather you're worrying a little bit about the Constitution. Well, I'm worrying a lot because um, in a very crowded field of uh, kind of low points during this Brexit episode, um, the last couple of weeks have actually been, I think, some of the most troubling. Um, and the reason for that is is not so much because of what's being argued for, but the combination of what's being argued for and by who. Because it's these last couple of weeks, you've had some really dodgy suggestions coming from previously <laughs> quite sensible sources. So, Such as? Uh, so, I mean, the examples that really come to mind is there's this talk of uh, proroguing Parliament uh, in order to just get Brexit over the line, which is kind of a, a breaking a bit of a constitutional red line, in my view. Um, but the idea is... Kind sort of, of Charles I red line. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's been there for a long time. The idea is basically shut down Parliament and then the Article 50 timer will tick down, you know, inexorably towards the deadline. I mean, it's been extended and all that, but eventually we're going to crash out. Um, and the idea is that you stop parliamentarians intervening in that if you stop them going to work. So who's <laughs> so, saying that? It sounds completely mad. So this one is completely mad. And this is mainly kind of Reese Moggian politicians, which is troubling. But frankly, we're, um, you know, we're used to politicians, I guess. So, you know, it is problematic. But for me, the even more problematic one is this talk of the Queen refusing royal assent to certain mm. legislation on Brexit, um, which would be viewed as frustrating it. Um, so this is absolutely remarkable idea that uh, the government could advise the palace to withhold royal assent on any bills that kind of threaten to throw Brexit off track. Um, which is also like this Yvette Cooper bill or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we don't, we're not going to have that. Yeah. So when it's, um, so the reason the government would do that is because uh, in a kind of unprecedented way, backbenchers are now making legislation. So, because usually the government, it would be the government's legislation, but now 
that's not guaranteed. Parliament's kind of taking back control. So it's kind of a fighting fire with fire situation. At least that's the argument. And the argument goes that backbench MPs have kind of uh, crossed this constitutional red line in Mm. seizing control. Therefore, uh, in a kind of tit for tat, it's actually comes down to tit for tat. Yeah, um, ministers do the same and kind of uh, go in with all the weapons at their disposal. Now, I think that's a really dangerous argument first of all, but I've also been worried at who's making it (laughs) because this shows how Brexit has radicalised previously sensible people. Um, So we've had uh, Stephen Laws, who is, I mean, he's written for me twice and both pieces were brilliant and he's someone I actually, uh, you know, quite respect. Uh, He was first parliamentary counsel, so kind of the government's top lawyer, I guess. Uh, And he wrote a a joint piece in The Times, uh, which, you know, He's maybe backtracked a little bit, and I want to be very careful not to misrepresent his views, but it is pretty much heading in this direction. Uh, flirting with this royal ascent. That's exactly it, yeah, flirt- flirting with it. Um, and then there was a Telegraph piece by kind of an Oxford professor, and I've seen a blog post by a Manchester professor. I mean, these are serious people in the constitutional nerd world, at least. These, are, you know, these aren't um, random whack jobs. Um, writing away with no one's paying attention. People are paying attention and it's quite concerning. Uh, some of them are saying, I think, uh, Samir, some of these characters, um, very erudite characters, um, that um, they have to put forward these ideas because the alternative is Parliament trying to become the government, which a Parliament of 650 people can't do. Um, do you have any sympathy <laughs> with the idea of, um, like, either closing Parliament down or, like, you know, using the Queen as if it were a presidential veto. I think that would be a disaster if the Queen um, didn't sign through legislation that, that, that she that she had to. It's up to the government to get a grip of this. Um, the Queen in Parliament is the phrase, isn't it? The idea that Parliament doesn't actually uh, legislate, it's... The, it, it, it's it's Parliament, as it were, rubber-stamping things that the government put forward. So it can stop the government doing things, but it can't, as it were, start things up. But maybe that system is one that needs to change. I mean, as uh, in the current issue of Prospect, um, I learned a very fine piece uh, by you, Tom, um, which you talked about the Canadian system, where they have um, the possibility that Parliament can itself and MPs can bring through legislation. Maybe that's the solution. Well, I mean, I think MPs here can bring through legislation if they overcome enough hurdles. Um, and I mean, the really interesting question is whether so i mean there's no doubt that mps are violating constitutional norms at the moment it's not normal what's happening with all these kind of cooper let win bills and stuff Mm. no one can say that's normal it's just by definition not it's unprecedented um but i think maybe there's a conflation of what's abnormal with what's actually violating like fundamental constitutional precedent and just because something's happened before doesn't necessarily mean it's at odds with the, the you know the lie of the land um and actually parliament is sovereign and even if it doesn't always choose to assert that fact in the way that it is currently mm. that doesn't mean it's not entitled to i think it i is mean all these to. standing orders uh that govern what the house of commons does and doesn't do you can change any of them with a majority of one and yet there is um a kind of understanding amongst parties amongst the players amongst the government amongst um what they call the usual channels the whips in the house of commons that you don't mess around with this stuff 
lightly because there might come a time where if you mess around with it, someone will use it um, against you. And you could imagine a government led by Jeremy Corbyn, which might have a majority of 20 or minus 10 or whatever, um, and is going to need quite a lot of muscle to get a lot of mutinous troops in line to get anything at all done might rue the day that some of this um like oh the mps are taking control stuff began to happen because it does set a precedent doesn't it it definitely does um as lo- i mean nikki de costa uh, who was director of legislative affairs at number 10 until recently wrote a letter for us recently talking about this danger of um the precedent that's being set by all this um i think it was standing order 14 i think that's the one that kind of gives government business precedents in the commons and that's one of the things that's there's a risk of being overturned of course the other person in all of this is john burko mm. um who just as i'm talking about some people and criticizing their uh uh what's the kind of ambiguous <laughs> interpretation of our constitutional system a lot of people are looking at burko for it with ex- pointing exactly the same accusations at him so actually this whole what seems like quite a niche constitutional debate actually speaks to a bigger Brexit issue of um, the radicalization of all sides and everyone just desperately scrambling to win the fight however they can. At least you can at least see the argument. What do you think, Smidged, on the basic point that came out of the Burko row about whether or not it's a good, uh, you know, whether it's fair enough for a government to say, reconsider this, there is a clock ticking and like, Let's keep going. Let's keep going and see if you change your mind. Do you think that was a legitimate thing for the government to do? Or did you rather admire Burko for saying that May couldn't do that? Well, his argument is that you can't bring the same piece of legislation forward because that will then increase pressure on parliamentarians to um, pass it. And that there could be nefarious kinds of squeezing of, uh, you know, wrenching of arms and sort of whispering in ears. The thing is, though, no piece of legislation ever is exactly the same because the context in which it's being discussed always changes. So if it's a week to go before the deadline, somebody might think, well, actually, two weeks ago, I didn't think this was a very good idea. But with a week to go, maybe I'm going to switch and pass May's deal. Mm. So in a way, that kind of political pressure that's been put on someone is in some ways the definition of of (laughs) politics, isn't it? Well, um, people who are worried about Britain's Basket as you go, Constitution. We've got lots more of it in um, the May issue of our magazine, which is in the shops now. But let's give ourselves um, a chance to stop worrying about Brexit now, Samir, and maybe worry about something that's even more important. Yeah, a few weeks ago, a book came across my desk, which looked uh, fascinating. Um, it's by David Wallace Wells, and it's called The Uninhabitable Earth. Uh, and I took it home, and it's one of the most terrifying books I think I've ever read. Um, it's about climate change, and it's about really what will happen if we have a 3.2 degree increase in temperatures, which is exactly pretty much what's going to happen um, if we do nothing about climate change. Um, just a few of the, the terrifying things he, he, he says is going to happen. Miami, Dakar, Shanghai, and Hong Kong will flood, plus 100 other cities. Uh, The world economy will lose $551 trillion cumulatively, he says. There's going to be wars over fresh water, um, as well as millions of refugees, heat stroke, cancer, all all sorts of things. It's it's a sort of rhetorical tour de force. And it builds up with an accumulation of detail that becomes um, overwhelming, really. And I wonder whether this book, um, along with others that are coming out, 
might be a tipping point in our discussions of climate change. Um, Wallace Wells describes it as something that is a, a hyper object. Um, in other words, what that means is that it's an idea so large and complex that it's it's almost impossible mentally to get your head round it. But maybe it requires an author or multiple authors to actually describe it in a way that can emotionally connect with us. Um, I was thinking about it in terms of maybe something like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which came out in 1961, um, which talked about the dangers uh, of DDT and the way that the environment was being poisoned. Mm. And whether this would be our last summer or whether we you know, would ever hear the birds again. And that led to definite political changes. I think that the Environmental Protection Agency was set up in 1970 in America after campaigns that had resulted from that, from that book. And I wonder whether the Wallace Wells's book might be a similar kind of uh, tipping point. And, and do you think precisely because we've had, particularly since the 60s, maybe, as you say, going back to 1961, similar kind of doom mongering that actually it might not resonate as it as it would have done? Well, it's interesting that a number of fiction writers are starting to take on this subject as well. Um, there are sort of dystopian novels, uh, Margaret Atwood and Cormac McCarthy spring to mind immediately. Um, John Lanchester's recent book, The Wall, imagines uh, a future apocalyptic climate, climate event mm. uh, and, and what, what happens to Britain after that. Um, by the way, in David Wallace Wells's extremely depressing book, the only one uh, point of positivity that I found in it was that the United Kingdom is going to be one of the countries least affected by climate change in terms of the weather changing patterns. Everywhere else is, is basically deemed, but uh, we might survive on our island. Is there any talk in the book about uh, the idea of us becoming so technologically advanced that we can, like, through man-made technologies, um, that kind of fire, <laughs> I don't know, pellets up into the sky or something and, and change the weather that way? That's kind of if there's any hope that I've got kind of in me left uh, when it comes to climate change, that's like, I kind of want that to be true. <laughs> yeah, geoengineering, it's called. And Wallace Wells does put that forward as a potential solution to climate change. He says that there, if there is any hope, then it is um, in technology. Other people, um, other climate change uh, experts have, have disagreed with him, saying that uh, if we put our faith too much in just technology to solve this, we're not going to make the necessary changes to our lifestyle in the West, which are necessary for um, climate change to be to be slowed down or, or, or to stop. Um, I suppose the... Um, Turning to the, back to the sort of fictional question, because I think I was saying that John Lanchester's written a new book about... Um, uh, uh, derived from climate change but I was wondering whether it's usually the domain of the dystopian novelists you know J.G. Ballard's The Drowned World in 1961 um, is, a, is a prime example of that but as we're getting more and more climate related events like the hurricane that hit Mozambique recently and in America it seems there's a superstorm every two years whether sort of big climate events are going to feed into social realist novels uh, as well as um, uh, uh, dystopian or sci-fi or cli-fi as it's known (laughs) the problem with with, with climate change is that it's so sort of in a way uh, extraordinary it's so sort of vulgar in a way it's too over the top for your sort of uh, social realist novelist to sort of get a handle on Um, but if these kind of events become more and more common 
then they may well feed into uh, our fiction in the way that they are our own collective imagination. It's interesting, Alex, isn't it, how it does bring you back to politics, though, because a huge thing which affects the whole world, but the flip side of that is every individual thinks my little bit doesn't make much difference. It might not make much difference, as Samir says, if you live in the UK. And so you need coordinated cross-border politics to do something about that. And, which and yeah, and there is an argument that China is just going to solve everything, you know, because they'll they'll take the lead on climate change because America w- will step back. Um, whether we want to leave it to a powerful nation state just just to try and solve climate change or whether they'll try and solve it for their their country and their surrounding air and continent and not worry about everyone else. I mean, it, it is something that requires incredible global cooperation. That also then... The only way that that can happen is through politics, of course. But politics, as you said, is made up of of individuals putting pressure on their governments. And that's why changing people's imaginative sense of what is becoming possible, the the impossible, it seems, um, the apocalyptic becoming real, um, is is a really important first step. Okay, enough. Our listeners may be pleased to hear about a country going mad and a world that's being slowly cooked. Uh, let's move on now. Our deputy editor, Steve Bloomfield, has been sat down with the journalist Stephanie Marsh, who's been filling him in on the moral minefield involved in reconnecting the children of sperm donors with the fathers who thought they were never going to have to meet them. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey dave yeah randy since we founded bombas we've always said our socks underwear and t-shirts are super soft any new ideas maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy wait what i got it bombas absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated wow did we just write an ad yes Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're listening to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Steve Bloomfield and I'm joined now by Stephanie Marsh. Stephanie, hello. 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 Um, So we're here to talk about uh, your essay in the new issue of Prospect, The Donor Detective. Uh, Let's begin by explaining who the donor detective is herself. It's Wendy Kramer. 
she's an American woman who had a son by donor sperm around 20 years ago. His name is Ryan. When Ryan was about five years old, he started asking questions about who his father was. Uh, and because Wendy had bought the sperm anonymously, she couldn't answer that question. There were questions that she wasn't prepared for at all. And she started wanting to provide Ryan with the answers to this and feeling a bit guilty about how she brought this child into the world without um, without being able to answer those questions. So she went back to the clinic, uh, found that the clinic was unhelpful to the extreme. They basically, they gave her a number, didn't she? <laughs> didn't they? Yeah, they gave her a number reluctantly. Um, and that was it. And she then became, as you said, a detective trying to find out who this, the father of Ryan was, which was a journey that took her about 10 years. It took her about 10 years. As you say, so the clinic gave her like very, very basic information, you know, Caucasian, you know, a, a certain height, uh, you know, very, very limited de- detail. How did she then start to piece this together? Well, it's fascinating because um, the clinic were were very reluctant to give her any information except for this donor number. She then went to the sperm bank who were able to give her a bit more information. It took about five years. And it was only, this was a real quest for her, it took five, five or six years. When she and Ryan appeared on Oprah that... She got a call afterwards out of the blue from another woman saying, I, th- I think we've had a s- the same sperm donor. Bit by bit, they they worked out who this guy was. It was quite scary because they didn't know, does this guy know that Ryan exists? Does he want to know about his existence? But Ryan was by that stage very, very involved. He was about 13, wrote an impassioned letter to this guy, uh, communication started, and long story short, um, they go on family holidays now. Um, Ryan now lives um, part time in San Francisco, where his biological dad uh, works. Um, it's a very sort of happy ever after ending. And what was fascinating about this is that she was using, you know, a lot of the uh, techniques that are now available to all of us with. You know, websites like Ancestry.com, DNA testing and so on, and then linking that with social media like Facebook and so on, um, which makes it so much easier now to find people. What she did after that um, was she realised that there was, after Ryan found his father, there was a real demand, not just from individuals who wanted to know who their biological parents were, but that... uh, parents themselves so she set up um, a an organization it was a yahoo group at first for to help other people find their their biological parents and of course as time went on technology became more advanced and suddenly there was facebook so you could start cross referencing you could start contributing to wendy's site which was expanding it's got about sixty thousand members now um, so you could say, I found my dad uh, via this sperm bank. Does anybody know um, whether they were conceived by sperm by this bank? 
the really critical change came about two and three years ago when DNA testing sites started to take off and they became very inexpensive and because of these technological breakthroughs that are now available very cheaply to everyone, people can now find out, for example, who their second cousins are, find out who they are on Facebook, find out who their dads are and make the link. And there have definitely been cases, many, where um, donor-conceived individuals have contacted people that they think uh, are their donor parents um, out of the blue on Facebook. One of the things that's so fascinating about this story is that this wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> you know, all, all these people you know, donated sperm, you know, certainly up until 2005 in the UK when the law then changed, uh, under anonymity. They were told, don't worry, it's going to be fine. No, one will, you know, no one's going to come knocking on your door in 18 years' time and say, hi, Dad, it's me. How has this changed things? Well, radically is the answer. Um, it's not something that the fertility industry may be anticipated. It's not something that, certainly from my having spoken to many people in it, uh, that they want to admit is even possible. No, they were, one of the things that was really striking about your piece was just how um, how resistant that the industry appeared to be to e e even considering that this was a possibility. Well, many clinics, uh, the, the big clinics, uh, told me that anonymity was still possible when we clearly now know that it isn't. And even here in the UK, uh, legally you can find out now if um, you're a donor-conceived individual conceived after 2005, you can, you can find out who your biological parent is when you're 18. But there's nothing to say now that age 12, I can't start researching this. Um, and of course, the fertility industry, I was very shocked at their reaction. That it was just a denial or it was, how do you know this? Or it was, um, it's not possible. And when pressed, some of them, some of these doctors said to me, um, well, we never promised full anonymity. We didn't know what was going to happen. One very prominent doctor said to me, well, one in 10 people statistically don't know who their real father is. Um, I found that very, very shocking. And I found it shocking also, moreover, that prospective parents are not being told this. Well, the interesting ways that Wendy summed this up in your piece was that uh, parents had been promised uh, a baby and that was their right and this was uh, this was the way they could be helped. Yes. And she said, well, look, no one is actually thinking about the rights of that child. It's all about the rights of the potential parent. No one's thinking about the child. Well, that's um, a key issue. And of course, these children are now growing up and thinking, hang on, I want to know who my father is potentially my mother why can't I find out and they're not getting answers so they're finding ways of finding out that's a really key issue because these donor conceived children are now growing up many of them grown up somewhere in their 30s 40s 50s even and they're saying hang on why can't I know who my father is I have a right to know surely who my father is potentially my mother um, and we go back to how we viewed adoption in the 70s 
and that revolution in our thinking as culturally um, where today we wouldn't dream of saying to an adopted child it doesn't matter who your father is uh, you're lucky to be born um, you know why are you making such a big deal of this and this is what donor conceived children and adults are being told you spoke to a lot of uh, children indeed now adults um, who'd been uh, donor conceived and people who had tracked down their parents or were or in some cases were thinking about tracking down their parents what sort of different reactions did you get from the people that you spoke to about about the idea of going through that process well i have to say it's one of the most moving bits of journalism i've ever had to investigate um most of them described how they felt about finding their parents as as a, t- a totally desperate quest that they they wouldn't be able to get on with their lives emotionally until they knew of course not all donor conceived individuals feel like this i talked to a set of twins both of them now 18 and one didn't care and the other one was desperate um and in this case, she had found a lot of her half-brothers and sisters, but she hadn't found her dad. And I said, what happens if you never find him? And she said, it's going to be the the worst thing that I can possibly imagine. And I said, do you think you have a fantasy about what this guy is like? And she said, yes. And I said, what if you do find him? And it turns out he's not a nice guy. It turns out he doesn't want to know who you are. And she said, I, I, I've thought about that and I think I'll be totally crushed. It, it would, I would never get, get over it. And then there was uh, another case, uh, one called Becky, who had no idea at all that she had been, uh, that she was donor conceived. Well, this is a situation you see a lot, especially among heterosexual couples who decide to go down the donor conception route um, because there's still a lot of shame about male infertility so a lot of couples certainly in the past have actually been advised not to tell their children Uh, and of course that shame is never dealt with within the family so Becky when she must have been about 21 she was very interested in genetics did a DNA test and hang on my dad isn't my dad um she grew up in a very nuclear family she had no idea about this her first thought was he my mother had an affair the parents denied this they joked about this they said uh these companies are unreliable these dna companies are unreliable but she researched and researched um she got in contact with the Donor Sibling Network, which is Wendy's organisation. And via that, she finally found her father, again, through Facebook. And relations between her and her family have now broken down because the parents have said to her, you have no right to talk about this. This is particularly upsetting to your father. And it's a very, very sad story. And she's had to hide the fact that she has met up with her biological father because the parents she grew up with don't want to know. In terms of the future, um, with 
obviously the law changing in this country, which yeah, as you explained, the piece doesn't necessarily mean that that every uh, donation is necessary, not anonymous anymore. But still, it's sort of moving in that direction. There's uh, law changes in Australia, one being considered Germany, to um, to lift anonymity. We're sort of heading towards a direction of of openness and transparency about this whole process, and maybe then also it would mean that some of these taboos about it might be lifted as well. Um, but for those who've gone through this process, as you've been saying, it's still an incredibly painful and you know hopefully uplifting it if it all goes right, but very, very volatile experience. I certainly think so. A lot of people don't want to think about it um, because maybe they're trying to conceive a child by donor sperm. I think particularly doctors don't want to think about it. Um, but curiously, the, the reason I met Wendy is um, at a psychotherapy co- conference and, and the psychotherapists there were saying this is a, a really important issue um, that we're missing because it's about identity. And if someone comes in to our clinic and says, I don't know who I am, I don't know <laughs> potentially what race I am, Uh, I need to know about my roots. I mean, hopefully one can understand how upsetting this must be and how confusing this must be, especially if parents um, refuse to talk about it. Having said that, I think there is definitely among parents now who are um, going down the route of donor conception, much more openness. I think another thing that uh, we have to think about, and I I certainly sympathise with a lot, is what happens to these uh, donors who suddenly get a knock on their door or an email saying, um, hi, Dad, I'm one of 20 children. And is that is that fair? And is, is that not shocking to them? And we've seen stories like that in the media and it, they, they seem to play out as um, happy families and all the rest of it. But certainly that's not always the case and you mentioned um, Germany and Australia where anonymity is being lifted retrospectively so suddenly every man who's ever donated um, is contactable and a lot of these men are saying this wasn't the deal um, this isn't fair and at the center of all this I feel is the fertility industry who haven't taken responsibility and haven't wanted to address this and I very much feel that it's sympathy with both sides. I mean it is a it's a fascinating clash of rights because you can as you say you can see from from the the donor's point of view well you know I was promised this wasn't going to be the case I was you know I gave my sperm for for other reasons not so that I'd be contacted in 20 years time by yeah as many as 20 people and yet for the for the offspring, it's, well, I want to know where I'm from. Yeah, it's very difficult. And I think a lot of donors, one has to remember they're 19, 20, 21. Um, there's no financial incentive for them to donate in this country. However, we buy in sperm. That's to say the fertility clinics here buy in sperm from the States where um, you'll see the sperm banks openly advertising for for young men to give their sperm and promising quite substantial amounts of money and 
if you're at university or you're struggling uh, financially, you're 19, 20, 21, you want to pay for your studies, you can understand why you might want to um, give your sperm for for money. And even men who give their sperm altruistically, and there are a great many men who do, this, as I said, was not the deal. And one, one, one has to sympathise, I think. We'll leave it there. Stephanie Marsh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, you can read Stephanie's essay uh, in the current issue of Prospects that is on newsstands right now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to Steve Bloomfield's chat with Stephanie Marsh there. And also thanks to Alex Dean and Samir Rahim, who you heard from in the podcast here at the heart of Westminster Earlier on in the programme, Rebecca Liu was this week's producer. If you've enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review, which really does help. We'll see you next week. Thanks very much and goodbye.